Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to, an, welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, very happy to have you with us uh, for our show today. If you're listening in real time, it's Friday and been another busy week in Georgia politics and in other news that we'll talk about on the show today as well. So um, as we start our review of the week's news, let's get right to the panel. Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter and the author of the Political Insider column is uh, with us. Um, AJC's um, really, I think, um, you've become, Patricia, in the months that you've been with the paper, just um, a really important part, a high-profile part of the AJC's political coverage. And your column just seems to get better and better every time it's published on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm just going to go back to bed now that I've had the highlight of my day. Thank you so much. Great to be with you, Bill. Thanks for being here. Uh, Professor Andre Gillespie, a professor of political science at Emory University and also director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference, is with us. Hi, Andre. How are you? Good. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Are you getting set? Is, uh, is Emery about to go on spring break? Uh, we got a couple more weeks before oh. spring break. Okay, so. so you're still working hard. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being here uh, today. By the way, how's your? Are you hearing okay? Are you having an echo that's going to be a problem for you during the show? You are. All right. We'll try to see. I am if... fine. Okay. Good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. No, we were having some problems when uh, we first connected with you, Renee Alegria. CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital is with us. How are you, Renee? I'm doing well. It's it's Friday. It feel good. The you know a lot lot to talk about, and obviously with Mundo, we uh, we try to break down information for the Hispanic community throughout Georgia, reaching about a million folks, uh, and you know. Always excited to do what we do with the great team. We should point out, though, and I'm not sure we've ever really said this, Mundo Hispanico, even though you're based here in Georgia, is a national uh, news organization. You have uh, people around the country working uh, for you, and certainly people are getting their news from you from all over the country, right? That's correct. We, uh, we actually reach about 10 to 12 million unique visitors a month. Uh, we're... Uh, the third largest digital first platform uh, in the United States in Spanish language uh, being based in Georgia just gives us a nice perch from which to get the view and panorama of the entire Hispanic community. But yeah, we reach California, New York, Texas, all the population centers. Well, I thank you for uh, making us aware of the broad reach of your organization. And Patricia, um, Renee says being in Atlanta is a good thing these days. We know as political journalists just how important Georgia has become to the whole country politically, yes? Yes, it's so true. Um, Georgia used to be, uh, it's never been dull here in Georgia, right. but it has really not been a swing state the way it is now. And so it uh, keeps every day lively and exciting, and we know the nation is watching. So um, let's start with a look at what happened this week in terms of the Board of Regents and Sonny Perdue, Patricia. Um, we've known for months and months that Sonny Perdue was uh, probably the leading candidate to become the next chancellor of the university system. Uh, we know that Brian Kemp uh, was favorable to his uh, being uh, the chancellor. The governor does not pick the chancellor. The Board of Regents uh, do that. But uh, Governor Kemp uh, has been able to replace members of the board, reshuffle the uh, leadership structure to put in place the people who would confirm that Sonny Perdue would be the next chancellor. And he's now their sole finalist for uh, the position. But his choice is not without controversy, is it? 
That's exactly right. It's uh, The choice of Sunny Purdue has actually been controversial since uh, word leaked that it might happen many, many months ago, almost a year ago. Um, there were protests by students. Uh, we have heard from the accrediting agency that uh, accredits the university system of Georgia that there were some concern that this process um, would have been too political. And uh, having a former GOP governor who's very close with Brian Kemp um, certainly looked political to some people. Um, however, in the many months since that word first came out, there have been a number of vacancies that were coming up on the Board of Regents, um, who does pick the chancellor, and Brian Kemp was able to replace those votes with people who are um, close to the governor, who he supports, and who support him. And as those vacancies have uh, come and then been filled, Sonny Perdue, who did not have the votes earlier to be um, the chancellor, now does have the votes to be the chancellor. He now has the support of the Board of Regents. Um, we, you know, I, we hear from people on both sides of this. People say Sonny Perdue was the governor of Georgia for two terms, uh, ran a massive federal agency. Um, his management skills are really not in question, but there are still questions about um, Perdue's political um, inclinations for the job, I would say. He said early on that he would want to um, make sure that Georgia values were infused in that role. What exactly that means is really a matter of interpretation. And that's the kind of interpretation I think some academics are uncomfortable with. But uh, he uh, will be the next next chancellor. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there at the end. Um, Andra, so uh, two things about that. Um, there have been questions as to whether his lack of any uh, experience uh, in a university uh, it should be should have been a disqualifier, um, but but even the accreditation uh, organization that initially said uh, we may look uh, uh, very disfavorably upon his being named to this job because of his lack of experience, they're now saying no. In fact, the regions don't really have a set of standards that would demand they put an academic in the role, so we're going to let this uh, go. But then, as Patricia points out, there's also these political. Uh, questions. He did say he wants a more conservative environment at the universities. Brian Robinson, a friend of this show for a very long time, a Republican political consultant, uh, said the other day uh, that it's a good choice because now conservative students may have more of a voice on campuses. So that has been another part of all of this, Andra. Yes. I mean, and I don't think we're going to separate the politics of it. And colleges and universities have their own politics. And so that's going to map on to this particular situation. So from the sort of internal university politics standpoint, um, I'm not questioning um, Secretary Purdue's uh, sort of management skills and credentials, but there is something to be said for actually kind of knowing the industry that you're coming into. So it's one thing to have management skills. It's another thing to actually kind of know sort of your case and know your industry. And so my concern, um, and I've had some professors, uh, you know, email me in the past week, is that this is the equivalent of telling uh, Bill Gates, right, that he can, you know, go run an, uh, you know, a, a produce company or an agriculture company. They're just things that he doesn't know about agriculture that just because he's very good at tech are not necessarily going to transfer over. And so you kind of have to steep yourself in um, that. And, 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 and whether or not, like, you know, politicians should ever become chancellors, I don't have a problem with politicians becoming chancellors if they were professors beforehand and actually understand what higher education is. And there are former legislators who were Democrats, who were governors, who might actually be better positioned for these types of jobs. The final thing that I think I will say about this is that, you know, this says a lot about uh, Brian uh, Kemp's heft. And I actually see this as actually a pretty deft uh, triangulation move. So, you know, the fact that he is supporting his competitor's cousin in this particular race, I think, shows how deep his network is um, and how he's actually, you know, it looks like for now weathering sort of the primary challenge from David Perdue. Um, uh, Renee, let's uh, keep talking about that just a few for a few more minutes. Uh, there was a an essay in today's Atlanta Journal Constitution by Chris Clark, who is the president of the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, and uh, Chris Clark, who worked uh, in the administration uh, back when Sonny Perdue was governor. And here's one of the things he says about Perdue's qualifications. He's very uh, excited. He says in this piece about Perdue getting the job, and he says this: um, critical. 
to building that long-term talent pipeline are the Georgia Board of Regents and the Chancellor of the University of System of Georgia. He's talking about training students for jobs in business. This pivotal public, public servant is the most critical link back to the business community. Georgia has a long history of partnership between business and the Board of Regents, and that's why I'm excited to learn that Governor Sonny Perdue has been named sole finalist as the next chancellor. A ringing endorsement saying this is a man who understands business and who will be able to move the university system in a direction that creates this pipeline of students to businesses across the state. Well, it, it seems to me that the, the position of chancellor of education throughout the state of Georgia is certainly much more than just a business position, right? It's not it's not a role in uh, in that series succession, right? Where where you know there are folks backstabbing each other to get ahead. An education, a quality education, has many components. And you know, does does Mr. Purdue have the the experience to grapple with those many components in that that are involved with public education? I I don't I don't know. Many folks don't think so. I do think that it's very controversial at the moment. Just not put aside the fact that his last name is Purdue and he's the cousin of Kemp's uh, arch nemesis at this point in the primary. But Purdue, you know, he, he, he went out and stood for Confederate History Month in Georgia in 2006. It was very divisive, very controversial. Um, we're, we're looking at this moment for a united Georgia, a cohesive, diverse Georgia, where our future is path with success of what all that means, um, is putting someone who has a disconnect with the future of the state, the wisest move in the grand scheme for the educational system in, in the state of Georgia. Uh, before we move no, on. No. Oop, I'm sorry, Renee. Uh, before we move on, Patricia, a couple notes. Number one, um, it, it turns out that something like 70 percent of the jobs uh, filled by people who become chancellors or members of boards of regents in universities across country do not have academic uh, credentials. It is not that unusual. And here's what I think is really interesting. It's not even unprecedented here in Georgia. When Errol Davis was named the chancellor of the university system back in 2008, something like that, nine, um, he had come out of industry. And in fact, his tenure uh, was uh, so celebrated that he went on to be uh, uh, named the, the head of the Atlanta Public Schools at a time when they really needed help. So this isn't an entirely unprecedented move, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I would say that politicians have kind of a hit or miss uh, uh, record with being introduced to academia. Um, although when I was graduating from college and I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, I was told if you like politics, go into academia. You know, it can be a very political place, very political <laughs> position. Um, and Sonny Purdue is going to be um, really well positioned for that. Um, what I find fascinating about this is because it is a lengthy term, no matter who was the next governor, Sonny Purdue is going to be the head of the university system um, on, without some unforeseen um, very unusual circumstance, he'll be the head of the university system, whether it's um, Governor Kemp, his ally, whether it's Stacey Abrams, who's the governor, or his cousin, David Perdue. So it is probably the one uh, stable thing we can look ahead toward, um, even while we've got this crazy political race going on. It does also have the really interesting dynamic of keeping Sonny Perdue on the sidelines while Governor Kemp and David Perdue are really battling it up. We've been waiting to hear from Sonny Perdue about this race, and this really guarantees that that's not going to happen. Yeah, I think that's probably correct. Um, Andre, before we move completely away from this, uh, let's point out the fact that this week, Governor Perdue, I'm sorry, Governor Kemp really showed us clearly um, that he has an iron fist. Uh, in, in his job as governor, especially as he's running for re-election. First, the reshuffling of the Board of Regents, which leads to Sonny Perdue, his guy, being uh, the next chancellor of the system. And then Andrew Pinson, um, who he plucks off of an appeals court um, where he's 
certainly been a judge who most people think has done a pretty good job to uh, fill a, a, a position on the state Supreme Court now that David Namias is going to retire. And, and, and Kemp essentially did this without going through a process of talking to other attorneys about this, vetting the candidacy a little more, although Pinson had been vetted in lower court in his lower court appointment. Still, this is Kemp showing he's tough-minded. He's got an iron will about doing what he wants to do, and, and he sees it as, I think, important to his re-election campaign. Oh, well, I think it is essential to his uh, re-election <laughs> campaign in order to be able to show strength, to be able to show independence, to show power, to uh, make decisions that are going to make people beholden to him. And so I, I view this all kind of as part of uh, of that and I think it's actually a really important lesson for when we talk about what the power of Donald Trump is. I mean, one, we have still have not empirically proven yet that Donald Trump actually can positively sort of uh, cause somebody's political fortunes to go up. And I think that there's a lot of sort of evidence that we need to examine more carefully that might actually call that into question. But the big question for Republicans is... Um, all of these folks were in power before Donald Trump came to power, and yet they cower in his presence today. And so sooner or later, right, it's going to take the realization that some of these players were around before Donald Trump, and they're going to be around after Donald Trump, and they had independent bases of support of him. And what we see is Brian Kemp quietly exercising that because he has to. And I think that that's actually a role model for other Republicans to just do the things that they knew how to do long before Donald Trump decided that he wanted to be president. OK, um, since we've already been talking a little bit about David Perdue and about Brian Kemp, let's let's look at that race and uh, some of the developments uh, that happened this week. Renee, um, earlier this week, the Trafalgar Group, which is a conservative organization that does polling, released a poll of something like a thousand registered Republicans in Georgia, and it found that Brian Kemp leads David Perdue 49 percent to 40 percent. Um, at the same time, we should say that the poll also found that 40 percent of the people they talked to did not know that David Perdue had been endorsed by Trump, which goes to what um, uh, Andre just talked about, is that going to be an important factor once they do learn this? But um, this poll confirms a, a, a lot of people's feelings that Kemp really, in his fundraising, which is far, far surpassed what uh, Purdue has been able to do, really has a momentum as the primary approaches in May. Your thoughts? Oh, it's, you know, poll, polls are always fun to, fun to, you know, discuss, read, whatnot. It, it, it's, it's a little early, right? But it does give us some insight. And essentially, it says, from my take on it, that uh, Trump still has a lot of sway within the core of the GOP party. There are certain folks that the poll did not reach. And who are those individuals and how are they going to vote? Um, that is the big question, right? Uh, we see Trump doing everything that he can to uh, back candidates around the country with questionable uh, experience and, and suspect records. Uh, how well they do here in Georgia is yet to be determined. Um, but I do think that it, it, it makes Kemp look rather clean He's, his core conservatism is held intact. He's making all the right moves to all the right core conservative uh, constituents, while at the same time doling out uh, votes uh, that will most likely pay off for him in the primary against most likely Stacey Abrams. So we'll see how it all works out. Um, so, Patricia, here's another interesting development in the governor's race. You're well aware of this. Um, David Perdue, who raised less than a million dollars in the last quarter, the reporting period at the end of 2021, has now called on Donald Trump and said, I need your help. And on March 16th, uh, Trump is going to host a fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago for uh, David Perdue. Talk about that a little, Patricia. Yeah, that's the kind of help that David Perdue really does need. He posted this just incredibly lackluster fundraising number, less than a million dollars. And it really 
makes me wonder what the conversations were before he decided to run with Donald Trump. Was it, don't worry, you'll have everything you need. We're going to raise the money for you. No problem. People are going to come out of the woodwork. It's going to be great. <laughs> you know, it has not been so great so far. Um, and so uh, we also know he's not catching on with those small dollar donors, which is something that caught my eye. He should really be popping with them if he's the Donald Trump preferred candidate. So he is getting reinforcements from Donald Trump. Um, he will have that Mar-a-Lago fundraiser in the middle of March. Um, although there, are, there is just a parade of candidates who are having fundraisers at Mar-a-Lago. Herschel Walker has already had his fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago. It will certainly be helpful to David Perdue, but he's not the only candidate getting this kind of treatment across the country. There are five other GOP primaries that Trump has gotten involved in. And so um, it will be a help. Um, I don't know We'll just have to see really what happens with that. Um, but it's just a part of a promise that Trump has now made to Purdue. Donald Trump is going to come here and do a rally for David Purdue mm -hmm. before the primary, he says. And he's also going to send his kids, Donald Trump Jr. and um, uh, the other Trump children, the whole Trump family will come and uh, start to stump for David Perdue as well. Now, a lot of this is sort of deja vu from 2020. All of this happened uh, before David Perdue lost his election in 2021. Uh, this is a GOP primary. So it's a different situation. Um, he, but he needs the help. He's behind Kemp, uh, not just in money, but in polling, as we talked about. And so Trump, uh, Trump has put so much into this race. He's put his reputation on the line. He cannot let Brian Kemp beat him in this primary. And so um, I think we're going to see a lot of Donald Trump and his efforts here in the weeks ahead. Right. Let me put this in a, a larger context. Uh, 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 Patricia, first you, and then I'd love to hear the uh, you, uh, Renee, and Andre weigh in on this. So um, we know that just yesterday, Kevin McCarthy, who hopes to uh, become Speaker of the House if Republicans take control of the House uh, after the elections, um, he decided to endorse Liz Cheney's opponent in a Republican primary race in Wyoming. Um, and, of course, that's because Liz Cheney was one of those who voted for impeachment and actually sits on the January 6th committee. But here's what I think is interesting about this, Patricia. The, her opponent is Harriet Hageman, who has raised in the last quarter just $443,000 compared to the $2 million that Liz Cheney raised in that period. Um, Liz Cheney now has $5 million cash on hand for her race, whereas the Trump candidate, Hegman, only has $380,000. And, you know, she, too, is one of those people who's going to have to be calling on Donald Trump and saying, hey, pal, <laughs> you got me into this thing. Where are you? Right. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly right. You know, one source that David Perdue has not tapped yet is his own wallet. Um, he is a very wealthy man, lives at Sea Island um, down on the Georgia coast, but he has not funded his campaign in the way that we expected him to. I think the expectation was that he might put one or two million dollars into his own race, and that was seen as being a huge strength of his, a huge advantage. But I think for other donors, they're also waiting to see when is David Perdue going to start spending some money on this race if he's asking me to spend some money on this race. And so that's an outstanding detail that we're still going to take a look at. Um, one really important thing that's happened in the last week in this race also is that the Republican Governors Association mm -hmm. has come out in favor of Brian Kemp. They've never come out during a primary. Um, and this is obviously a contested primary. And so the RGA, very, very powerful, very deep pockets. It is a vote against Donald Trump. It is them saying, stay out of this race. There's nothing that Brian Kemp has done that's not consistent with being a solid Republican governor. And so I think that'll be a very important uh, dynamic to watch as well, as more and more Republicans start to really have to choose which way they're going to go in this primary. So, Andra, um, this goes back to what you've talked about, how important is Trump's endorsement and the fact that his hand-chosen candidate in Wyoming can't raise any money, that David Perdue's having trouble raising money. Um, you know, it does raise these questions about just what his value is. And he's raising, of course, hundred-plus million dollars uh, already since leaving uh, the White House. Uh, it's, it doesn't seem to be going to the candidates he's endorsed, Andra. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, Donald Trump is raising hundreds of millions of dollars because he sends nasty texts every day, including I haven't heard from you. Like it is borderline <laughs> kind of bullying to badger people into into giving him money. I get those emails multiple times a day um, and the texts as well. So um, I, I think sooner or later, 
Republicans are going to have to ask themselves what they are getting out of it. So, yes, they got a cache of uh, voters who hadn't previously been active consistently in elections before, but they've gotten a lot of chaos. Uh, they've gotten multiple investigations that were warranted. They've gotten a couple of impeachments and he doesn't share the wealth. So sooner or later, this is like people are going to have to realize that this is a very, very unequal relationship. And while it remains to be seen what the story of the 2022 election is from the Republican side, the possible storyline could be that, uh, you know, it's finally proved that the emperor has no clothes in this particular, um, you know, scenario where like endorsements don't matter, where sort of having the imprimatur of being sort of the Trump endorsed candidate doesn't necessarily translate into the type of fundraising or votes that you want. And so what I would say is even kind of going back to this, uh, the survey question is be mindful that surveys that are taken this far out from an election um, are likely to shift and change. Um, I will say about Trafalgar, even though their 538 rating has improved a mm -hmm. lot in the last year, um, this is a group whose sampling uh, sort of technique seems to be somewhat opaque to a lot of people. And a lot of people scratch their heads about it. So while I don't necessarily disagree with the intuition um, of what's going on here, like I, I would, I would just caution that there are lots of reasons to take this with a grain of salt. Even though I think it looks like the the winds are actually pointing in the direction of Kemp being ahead, Herschel Walker being ahead, et cetera. I, I think that's a really good point. And, and so I think, and Renee, you basically hinted at this, the, the fact that this poll shows Kemp with a nine-point lead may not have anything to do with what the outcome of this race is going to be. First of all, a lot of things might develop in the time between now and May 24th. But more important, this is the sort of thing that if you're going to open your, your checkbook and give money, you may not be quite as inclined right now to give it to David Perdue. And I'd be glad to have you address that, but also add one other note that you could talk about. In this same poll, Herschel Walker's at 70 percent. I mean, you know, Gary Black, the others are in single digits. And, and it looks for all practical purposes that that race is over with. Yeah, according to this particular poll, you're, you're right. It does look like Walker is a foregone conclusion. Uh, just... Uh, this morning or last night, I saw an Instagram post where uh, Herschel Walker is basically auctioning off a, a Trump Mar-a-Lago golf uh, trip, which is interesting. Um, and you, you just frankly don't even know where all this money is going to. There, there has been many reports of Trump's capitalizing personally on all of the money that's being donated to him, all of the MAGA hats and t-shirts, et cetera. Where are all these millions going? I think what we're watching right now is a, what we knew of as the conservative political machine just implode. It doesn't know where it is going and, and who it is anymore. And it's encapsulating everything that's happening in politics right now. It's Trump versus old school conservatives um, it's entrenched politicians versus today's youth. Uh, that youth is diverse. They want authenticity. Uh, that's where someone like uh, Sonny Perdue may not be the you know authentic uh, education chancellor that folks under a certain age want to see in their leadership. So you know we'll we'll see how all of these play out as we get closer to all of the elections. And how Democrats then, you know, kind of regain their footing. Right now they're scrambling for a cohesive message and they're not really able to control the media narrative. Um, they've been struggling in, in that department. So, I mean, we're really seeing chaos in this post-pandemic political landscape and, you know, watching it uh, die and come back to life is like, uh, you know, political walking dead. Okay. Got to get to our first break of the show, but a lot more to talk about when we come back. This is Political Rewind. Mundo Hispanicos, Renee Alegria, Emory University's Andre Gillespie, and the AJC's Patricia Murphy joined me for today's Political Rewind. Um, let's talk um, a little bit about another event that took place this week, Patricia. And that is, <clears throat> once and for all, excuse me, uh, both the lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, 
And the Speaker of the Georgia House, David Ralston, said, no, we're not going to move forward with Buckhead Cityhood this session. Now, Duncan Patricia spoke first on this. He said he hasn't seen any uh, documentation that shows that the people who are advocating for cityhood have got a clear path for doing it financially in terms of the schools and the like. And that gave Ralston sort of an easy landing place because what Ralston basically said was, in his first comments on this, was, well, if the Senate's not going forward, uh, we can't do anything about it in the House. But the movement is certainly dead this session, yes? Yes. Um, there could still be a hearing, a House or Senate hearing on the issue um, on a potential bill. But in terms of actually moving this to the floor for consideration, um, both Speaker Ralston and Lieutenant Governor Duncan have said they also really want to give Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens time to work on this issue. And so I think that they have uh, each met with Andre Dickens a few times. They've talked to him quite a bit, and he has told them what his plans are to bring crime down, not just in Buckhead, but across the city. And so both both of them have said they really think that the mayor deserves time to deal with this issue since that is ostensibly what is driving that Buckhead City movement to secede from Atlanta. Um, th but there have been a lot of other problems with the entire effort. Um, number one, as you said, the Buckhead City group um, has never answered the questions that people have been asking. It's a much more complicated issue to separate one city from another. Um, that raises questions about schools, about bond ratings uh, across the state. It raises questions about who will pay for which bonds, what happens to the city parks in Buckhead, what happens to the city schools. Mm -hmm. So none of that has ever been addressed in the year that this has been going on. And there are yard signs and there are mailers and there's just information everywhere. But the real answers to the questions have never been provided. I think both leaders were uncomfortable pushing this forward without knowing more about what this might look like. Um, and then the final piece of it is Bill White, the leader of the Buckhead City Movement, has been very controversial. In person, he is very dynamic and charming. On social media, he has been acerbic, aggressive, attacking lawmakers, um, and then finally attacking the um, the former CEO of MARTA and uh, really pushing a really ugly conspiracy about uh, him uh, after he committed suicide. And so it's been an effort that I think everybody in the state capitol has said, uh, no, not, not now, maybe later, but not now. Um, Renee, uh, let's pick up on the Bill White part of this story. As Patricia points out, uh, he lost a lot of ground among legislators on both sides of the aisle and on both sides of this issue uh, when he did attack Jeffrey Parker, who committed suicide, whose family said he'd had depression. And, and White uh, uh, set out this message saying that maybe Parker killed himself because of missing money in MARTA funds. There wasn't any missing money in MARTA funds. And what what the reason I mention that now is that the Buckhead Cityhood folks had a news conference Wednesday. They reaffirmed that Bill White is their leader and he'll move forward with this effort, um, which I thought was particularly interesting uh, because it feels like White has become increasingly tone deaf. Yeah, it appears that uh, Bill White took the Trump train just too far, didn't he? I mean, maligning a dead man on Instagram who obviously had mental health issues and was going through something. I mean, everyone knows someone who has gone through dark times and it was just heartbreaking to read uh, about how he he passed and his family and for Bill White to go on Instagram and, and do what he did and, and then delete the posts made it all, all, all the worse, right? Um, at the same time, he's using meetings to brag about himself while expecting everyone else to heap praise on him and well, doesn't that sound awfully familiar? Um, uh, perhaps the cityhood fight is an indication, really, of how uh, Trump-oriented Georgia conservatives are are willing to get. Will they draw a line and not cross it, as some have done with uh, this, with not putting Buckhead City on on the ballot? Look, I, I I think that Bill White, he's a he's a professional fundraiser. He's a Trump wannabe. Um, he's, he's continuing to push for cityhood as as long as there's money in it. He's got a he's got a pack, and the city committee is behind him. He's not going to stop um, until the dollars dry up. So, it's it's going to be interesting to see where he gets 
next year with the people that are backing him. One thing is, is I think we should point out, though, there are a lot of folks in Buckhead that do not want this to happen, right? They are, they are committed to having Buckhead, you know, be that beloved community uh, that Atlanta is supposed to be. There's a reason why Atlanta is not Birmingham, right? We, we espouse diversity. We, we look forward. We're, we're all about like inclusion um, in business, in arts. And that's what many in Buckhead see themselves as, as being the shining light on. So, you know, we'll see how it all works out. But let's say that, that uh, it's not being on the ballot this year is no surprise given uh, how fumbling that, that whole movement has been. Andre, before we move on, your your thoughts on the, what was a very sudden uh, collapse of the Buckhead City movement in this past week? Um, you know, I can't say that it was a sudden collapse. I think the signs were pointing in that direction. I think for me, in December, after Andre Dickens was elected uh, mayor and he showed up at a meeting of all of the sort of business sort of leaders in the city, and that was a pretty bipartisan group, and this was a group that seemed like they were united against Buckhead Cityhood. I think the handwriting was on the wall then. Um you know, I think the stories about sort of Bill White and his racist and conspiratorial posts, I think certainly haven't helped. And for that Buckhood City Coalition, I think that that would be a sign to say that that disqualifies him from leadership in this. But I think, you know what, it was also doomed from the fact that this guy has hardly been in Atlanta sort of long enough to really get to know the city. And yet he's proposing something drastic. This is something, a question that I'm working on with my colleague, Michael Leo Owens. And so we have a working hypothesis that is soon to be vetted by peer review. And I think part of the issue with Buckhead's secession is, is that this is more complicated than your standard garden variety kind of cityhood initiative where you're taking an unincorporated part of a county and then making it a, a city. And, um, and and so like we have to sort of understand that what he was asking for was crazy. And he probably wouldn't have suggested in the New York where he came from that the Upper East Side should become its own independent city or its own borough, right? Because there's a certain cachet of being able to say that you're part of New York, that you're part of Manhattan. And so that's the same incentive that I think a lot of people in Buckhead feel, even if they're frustrated by crime, that like there's a certain cachet of being able to say that you are part of Atlanta and that you are the toniest neighborhood in Atlanta and not just your own little rich city enclave that's independent of that. And so I don't think that he factored this in. And I think the people who have gone along with him really didn't think this one through. So not to say that this is dead, but I think that there are a lot of incentives for Buckhead to remain a part of the city of Atlanta. Uh, Patricia, by the way, before we leave the subject entirely, we should say cityhood movements are certainly alive and well at the legislature. Four uh, cities in Cobb County could become reality uh, if their communities vote them into being. Uh, Are all four of them on the primary ballot or is is there a division among when they will be voted on? It varies by city. Uh, We know that the city of East Cobb has gotten the green light from the legislature and the governor, and that'll be on the May primary ballot. Um, And the other ones have not yet gotten through. They have not finished their um, legislative process, so we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Um, The city of East Cobb said they wanted to have a vote by uh, to. I guess, secede or break away um, in May so that they could then elect a a mayor and city council in November. So that was their reasoning for wanting to move ahead quickly. Um, What we're waiting for, although the Cobb County Commission has now released some initial figures suggesting they're going to take an enormous financial hit if these cities are all approved, uh, we haven't seen a a really uh, uh, significant um, academic study of, of just what the uh, uh, penalties might be for the for Cobb County if they lose all this revenue, right? That's right. There has been a viability study for each one of these cities individually, but there's not been a holistic look at what it does to a, co- a county like Cobb to have four separate pieces of the county break away possibly in the same year. So it will certainly create duplicative services. Those towns going to start to offer some of the same services that uh, Cobb County offers. Now, Cobb won't have to um, offer those anymore. They won't have to deliver those anymore to those parts of the county, but they will still have their own independent groups doing them in the rest of the county. And so we'll have to really see what this does. And I know that state leaders are really grappling with this rush to create people's Mm -hmm. individual cities. Um, It is having effects larger effects in the counties where they are. In some cases, they're positive effects. In some cases, they're negative. Um, also, I think when Atlanta has these just incredibly booming, rapidly changing counties, 
it's putting the residents who have lived there for a long time to say, you know, I don't feel like this feels like the place I moved to. I want it to go back to the way it was. And does having your own city really make it the way that it was? Yep. I think it's a it's kind of a fascinating process to watch and we'll see how it turns out. But the Buckhead cityhood is not going to be moving ahead. Yeah, not this, this year. year that, that's for sure. Uh, let's get to our final break of the show and come back with more on Political Rewind. Renee Alegria, I was looking at the Mundo Hispanico website today, mundohispanico.com, for people who want to check it out. And uh, one of the stories that caught my attention um, relates to one of the most controversial decisions that the Trump administration made when it came to immigrants. Uh, They established a rule which uh, said that uh, immigrants who were applying for legal status in this country but were also receiving certain public benefits – would be denied uh, admission into the country. And, and that did cause a lot of controversy out there. The Biden administration has not enforced that rule for quite some time. Now they formally said, we are doing away with it. Renee? Yeah, we, um, we, we did cover this. Uh, it's certainly breaking uh, in the last 24 hours. Uh, and it's part of what Biden is doing to reverse uh, a, a lot of pushback he's gotten from uh, the immigrant community uh, with with the lack of cohesion with his immigration policies. Uh, many Hispanics voted for Biden so that he could redo the entire immigration system. Not much has happened under his watch. This is a step in that direction. So there's going to be a lot of uh, happy folks out there, uh, immigrant advocates, immigrants themselves, uh, who are directly affected by this? Mundo reports on this all the time. Um, well, I mean, it, it, but how far is he going to go? That's always that's always the the question that that many Hispanics, um, many immigrant advocates have about reform. It's a very complex issue. The policies are so heartbreaking as they touch families, uh, not just Hispanic, but from every every ethnic group around the world. Uh, but this is a step in the right direction, and he's being applauded for it. Um, it strikes me, uh, my political rewind team, that uh, we ought to think about in um, weeks, months ahead, doing a special show on where immigration stands right now. It is clearly one of the most important issues in this country, and certainly right here in Georgia. So we'll think about doing something uh, um, more uh, robust around immigration sometime relatively soon. Andrew Gillespie. Um, the Ahmad, uh, the the hate crimes trial uh, uh, of the three men who murdered Ahmad Arbery uh, began this week in Brunswick, and I think it was distressing to many of us who listened as uh, prosecutors uh, revealed texts that, uh, particularly Travis McMichael, but certainly his dad Greg as well, had sent out, in which they um, expressed the deep hatred they had for. African-Americans. Now, whether they can link that to the fact that that's why uh, they killed Arbery or not is still a challenge for the prosecutors. Uh, But it just reveals to us that there is still a sickness uh, in the soul of of some Americans out there. Yes? Um, Yes, but I can't say that I was surprised um, by the things that I I heard about or the things that I I, I read. Um, One, I think that there it's important to kind of keep in mind that like you don't get to the point where you're chasing uh, somebody down the street where you called the cops and said there's a black man running down the street and reported that as a crime unless there's some antecedent attitudes. And I think that those were reflected in the very, very vile uh, uh, text messages that uh, were presented as evidence. Um, and so while I'm not a lawyer and while I, I want to let the prosecution do the job that it that it needs to do and, and let the defense have their say, I'm also not surprised that in the 21st century that there are people who are holding these type of openly, overtly racist points of view. Um, There's public opinion data that still sort of pointed to the fact that there was a small but significant minority of Americans who still hold very, very stereotypical and very racist views. And so sadly, there was nothing in what I've heard from the evidence in the federal trial that surprised me. Um, You know, what I look forward to is the day when I'm when I am surprised by this. But like, clearly, we're not there. And I knew that before this trial started. Absolutely. But it's just 
it, it, it's just so awful to hear it revealed in such stark terms. Um, you know, Patricia, one of the things is, so the McMichaels have these really despicable uh, uh, text messages about black people. But there was something about uh, Roddy Bryan that was troubling in a whole different way. Uh, yesterday, the jury heard a conversation that he had with a Glynn County police officer who arrived on the scene. And this is just one of the quotes from that uh, um, uh, tape. Should we have been chasing him? I don't know. Brian chuckled, according to the reporting, as he spoke with a Glynn County police officer uh, on the scene uh, the afternoon of the killing. He referred to Arbery as the black guy and a joker as Arbery's body lay in the street. When I see him coming around the corner right there, it was almost like the black guy was tired of running. There's a casualness to that that is, to me, uh, just terrifying. Yes, and I think that it really is uh, the inherent to dehumanize people who are different from you and not to value their lives. And so I cannot imagine Ahmaud Arbery's mother hearing that and saying, hearing a man who was a part of killing her son to say, should I have been doing that? I don't know. You know, just still so casual, even after it happened and saying this to the authorities, um, there was nothing they were trying to hide. Uh, he is the one who taped the event in the first place that has eventually led to their convictions. And so um, I think it's really important for people listening to this to really pay attention to this trial. Obviously, they've already been uh, uh, convicted on the murder tri- the murder charges, but to see racism um, in all its forms, to see how it has so infused these men's perceptions, um, it is almost a lifestyle for them. They had um, all kinds of Confederate imagery in their daily lives, on their truck, um, and it has cost one man in this instance his life. Um, that has been uh, preceded by thousands, hundreds of thousands um, of uh, blacks killed in this country, um, brought, brought over as slaves. I mean, there it just it it has never stopped. And I think it's important for people to understand that yes, racism exists. We all know that, but this is what it looks like, and this is why it is still so acutely dangerous. I th- thank you for that. That's I think you know, Andra says this doesn't surprise her, which to me is distressing in and of itself. But I think you just said it. it we, got to, we are seeing it played out, the real face of it in Brunswick. And, and that is a hard thing. Andra? So, you know, and I think the thing that I want to add to this is that we have to come to grips with the fact that the McMichaels and the Bryans of the world are our next door neighbors. They're not just those crazy rednecks mm. that live out in the sticks. That, right. Like these they're, they're in our neighborhoods and we have to deal with it. And we can't just dismiss this as sort of the province of just sort of like, you know, dumb, uneducated people. Yeah. There are some people who might not use that terminology, but you've said other things or you have heard other things in, in, you know, in and around your life. And that's the part that makes this pretty pernicious. So, Andrew, you gave me an opening I, to talk about a personal experience. I moved to Georgia. I've said this on the show before in 1983. The last story I covered as a political journalist in Chicago was the campaign of Harold Washington, who became the first black mayor of Chicago. I would go with Harold into neighborhoods on the northwest side of the city where people would throw rocks at him, um, where the racism was so overt, it was terrifying. After that campaign ended, I announced that I was going to come down to Atlanta to go to work for WSB-TV as their national political reporter. And my friends in Chicago said, how can you go to the racist South? How can you move to that part of the country? My response to them was, did you all just live, Andra, through the same mayor's race that I did? And that goes to this notion that you're talking about. It's our next door neighbors, wherever you live in this country. And any sociologist could tell you that Chicago is the most segregated city in America. And so, yes, and, and, this yeah. is all of our problem. By the way, <laughs> we're, we're on Monday, we're going to do a special show in which we an hour sit-down conversation that I had with uh, Andy Young. And um, Andy Young has told me many, many times that he was more afraid when they marched in Cicero in Chicago than anything they did. Uh, in the civil rights days here in the South. Um, All right. Uh, That's Monday's show, by the way. And I hope you'll uh, watch it because um, we get a chance to really, we get a chance to really talk about his entire career uh, on that show on Monday. All right, Patricia, uh, Terry England has announced that he's retiring. Now, to to a lot of people out there uh, beyond our circles at the Capitol, that doesn't mean a whole lot. 
But we know that Terry England has been a remarkable force in the Georgia House. I mean, this is the appropriations chair. He is the guy who has to go through every single line in the budget. He's got to deal with the needs of disparate people. Um, And the thing about Terry England is he's hardworking. And I don't know about your experience, Patricia, but I've always found him to be just a decent a lovely human being with a lot of responsibility, Patricia. (laughs) Yes. Anytime that we have wanted to interview him, ask him questions, he's incredibly accessible to the media, which really helps inform our reporting. And I know that he understands that. Um, But he also informs himself on the money that the state is spending. Hmm. And so he will go out and visit state prisons. He'll visit schools. He'll visit any number of um, destinations where the state the state's money goes. And so um, it seems like a very wonky kind of inside, inside uh, the Capitol um, job, but it has an effect on every single Georgian's life. And uh, to have somebody in there who um, has never had a whiff of scandal, there has never been any suggestion that any pot of money is missing. It's an incredibly powerful position. But England is is really trusted by Democrats and Republicans alike in the Capitol. And um, that is a quality, I think, that's going to have to be required for the next chair of the Appropriations Committee. It's never yeah, been here, a David problem Ralston's with Democrats quote, accusing him of anything. And, and we hope that continues. Uh, I apologize for interrupting you. Uh, David Ralston's quote about this. I have often said that other than being the speaker, the Appropriations Chairman puts in more time during the Uh, during the interim, in other words, between sessions than anyone else, I'm going to miss him uh, bad. I think so, as Patricia pointed out, so are a lot of us who have covered him as journalists and have found him to be accessible and a decent guy to deal with in all things. We wish you well, Terry England, although you got a big job ahead of you to finish this session before you leave. We're out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Renee Alegria, I've uh, Mundo Hispanico. Thank you so much. We're always glad to have you with us. Everybody, read MundoHispanico.com. Uh, if you're like me and don't speak Spanish, that's okay. Google will translate it for you. And there's a lot of interesting uh, content on that website. Andre Gillespie, Emory University political science professor, thank you for being with us today. Patricia Murphy, of course, we're glad to have you here too. Uh, before we leave, I want to thank all the people who've worked on this show. You know our team at Political Rewind, Jesse Neiswanger, Natalie Mendenhall, um, and Sam Burmistoss. But when we're doing it for TV, we've also got Dennis Buchanan, Alex Word, Jeff Bunk, Aaron Rothwell, James Turner, Matthew Wolf, who helped put this show together. So thanks to all of you for your work in bringing Political Rewind to our listeners and our viewers out there. That's it for us today. As I said, Monday is special show. Andrew Young is about to turn 90. He is a remarkable individual, and I am very, very honored to be able to say that over the many years we've I've covered him, we've gotten to be good friends. And that's the kind of conversation that Andy and I had as we sat down to talk about his life and career. I uh, hope you'll tune in and listen to it on Monday's Political Rewind. That's it for us today. I hope you'll take care and stay healthy. See you next week.